Shiite. What the fuck is that? It's the new Bell and Sebastian. That... It's the record we've been listening to and enjoying, Barry. Well, that's unfortunate because it sucks ass. Yours, I assume? After a record store owner gets dumped by his girlfriend, he revisits his past relationships to find out what went wrong. Listen as we chat about the perfect pop song, the coolest way to organize a record collection, and the opposite of a romantic proposal. Then we find out if high fidelity stands the test of time. James and Allen have their say Do the movies you love still hold up today? James says gladiator with a glut Allen says as a father blah blah It's the test of time James and Allen have their say Do the movies you love still hold up today? Test of time James and Allen have their say Do the movies you love still hold up today? Hello, everybody, and Happy New Year! Welcome to the very first test of time of 2023. My name is Alan Noah. How you doing, James? I am doing very well. I'm James Brief, and happy 2023 to you and to all of our listeners out there. Yeah, 2023! I feel like that doesn't really have much of a good ring to it. No, not much of a ring, but uh, I guess to all the podcasters not necessarily listening in order, happy 2024 and uh, happy 2025, but uh, we know what happens in 2026, so good luck. Wait, what happens in 2026, James? It's another uh, Winter Olympics. Oh, yeah, but who gives a shit? Finland. (laughs) And that's it. (laughs) Just Finland. They're the only ones who care. I do, too. I will defend the Winter Olympics. They're awesome. But uh, you know what really is awesome, Al? What's that? Cobra Kai. Yeah, so... I finally, finally finished season five, and you had been on me for a while about like, hey, Al, did you finish Cobra Kai season five? And I was like, not yet. And I was really, really slow with it. Part of it is that I started watching it with Eli. Then we got sidetracked because he got really into the Rocky movies. And then anytime we had to like sit down and watch something. He just wanted to watch Rocky. And then he decided that Rocky is his favorite and he hates Cobra Kai. So then I had to finish the season on my own. When did the season even come out? Like September? I don't know. It's been out for a while. Okay. But uh, yeah, I just finished it and I really enjoyed it. I mean, the show is cheesy. It's it's kind of tacky. It has a little bit of that 60s Batman flair to like, this is kind of ridiculous. It's like, karate breakouts everywhere and nobody ever has a weapon maybe like a chair you know the acting is good i think i would say it's i would say it's amazing i would say it's, it's good uh ralph macchio is a fine actor william zabko is actually i think he's a very good actor you know who's really awesome paul walter hauser He's like the older guy who's a Cobra Kai uh, student. He's the one that uh, is beaten up and they frame. Uh, oh, Stingray. Old... Yeah, yeah, Stingray. Uh, this oh, guy, Paul yeah. Walter Hauser, he's blowing up. He's actually a serious actor. So, um, Oh, cool. It wasn't as I predicted, but every single person I said was going to come this season did show up. Not exactly in the character roles that I thought they would, and I give the writers credit for that. But uh, I thought it was a blast. Uh, what do you think? I thought it was really fun. I mean, maybe a little bit 
soapier than previous seasons, specifically, and I guess, spoiler alert, even though it came out months ago, but um, Johnny and his girlfriend having a baby, that felt like a soap opera kind of a plot line. And that's not necessarily a bad thing, but it just felt a little eye-roll worthy. Uh, you know, and the, the teen drama, love triangle, quadrangle, whatever things, after a while, it gets a little boring. But I also kind of felt like they had been playing with this love triangle with Miguel and Sam and Robbie forever. And they kind of like put that to bed, which I appreciated. And the whole Miguel versus Robbie rivalry, which I was like, are they going to drag this out all season long? And they didn't. So I appreciated that they kind of like know when to put certain storylines to bed and just move on. I will admit that I found the teen romance to be by far the most boring part. And if there was an all-out karate brawl and I happened to be looking at my phone or not really paying attention, I would rewind and watch that again because it's just fun. But I would be like, okay, let me check my phone for a second. I just didn't find that stuff fun. I think that's why Eli was losing interest in Cobra Kai, because he liked the fighting, but there was a lot of talking about feelings and love and stuff and that he doesn't care about. I mean, I don't think the feelings and love are bad. I just don't think it's particularly compelling. I think the baby is the obvious uh, redemption of Johnny. Uh, I would be surprised if he even names the baby Daniel or... uh, His middle name will be Miyagi or something. But I will say that uh, there was one fight, good for the director of photography for filming it in a way that kind of looked believable, but it was still kind of a a slightly lame fight after all these kids were like doing backflips and like jumping off staircases. And one of the actors is, he's got to be in his mid-60s or or around then. I'm talking about uh, Terry Silver. Oh, I mean, he's... Okay, which fight scene are you talking about? Uh, I'm talking about him versus Daniel at the, at the end of the uh, the season. Uh, you know, okay. I, I thought I thought it was fine, but I kind of always wanted to see Terry Silver really kick some ass, and you never got to see that in Karate Kid Part Three. You know, for all of the opponents, uh, I'd put uh, Chosen in his prime and Terry Silver in his prime as by far the uh, the biggest threats that they ever had, much more than Johnny or uh, or Sensei Kreese. Ralph Macchio has said that he's not great at fighting, and you can kind of see it in the show. They were building up to Silver versus Daniel all season. It had to be them two. It couldn't have been anyone else to take Silver down, just story-wise. I didn't think that fight was bad. I thought it was one of the better Ralph Macchio fights. Anything with Crease is just well-positioned camera angles, because that guy is like well into his 70s, and he's not doing any fighting. I agree with you that the uh, Martin Cove fights were kind of lame, but I give them credit for a very clever trick that they did. He's talking to his past self, and they basically replaced Martin Cove with his younger self that had been playing his Vietnam flashbacks, and that guy was able to take down an entire jail. You are supposed to believe that it was actually this 70-year-old sensei that did it. That leaves a little uh, to the imagination. But uh, I thought that they pretty much wrapped up every single possible storyline. I still predict for season six, they're getting her. Hillary Swank? Obviously Hillary Swank. They're going to get her. Maybe. I did read some interview with uh, John Hurwitz or one of the other writers, producers, showrunners, someone who was like, yeah, we're thinking about it. Maybe. You never know. 
I, I mean, it could happen. She's the only person left, right? She's the only person left. Uh, Daniel's mom is back. The uh, mini golf place where he had a date. The female character from uh, part three, who's not in the second part of part three. They brought her back. And Elizabeth Shue, uh, probably she had fun doing an episode or two. I don't think they paid her too much. I I hope they did. But, you know, I don't think this was a money grab. I I think she probably was like, that'd be great to work with uh, Ralph again and William. That'd be fun. I think Hilary Swank's going to do it. I still think it's going to be something along the lines, too, of uh, Daniel telling Johnny, Mr. Miyagi told me there was one other person that we could turn to if we ever needed help someday. Could be. I'm signed up for the next season. I'm into it. Hopefully, I'll be able to get through that season quicker. But let's talk about this week's movie, High Fidelity. So this is a movie that you picked, and I was really excited when you mentioned it, because I remember seeing this movie in the theater. It came out in 2000 when we were in college. I remember seeing it at the Pyramid Mall in Ithaca, New York, and I really, really enjoyed it. But I haven't seen it uh, since then, 23 years ago. So for anyone who doesn't remember High Fidelity, I'll give you a little recap of it. It's about Rob Gordon, who's played by John Cusack, and he's the depressed owner of a barely profitable record store in Chicago. Rob's girlfriend, Laura, breaks up with him, which leads to an existential crisis. To find out why all of his romantic pursuits end in failure, Rob contacts the other women he dated throughout his life. There's Allison, who he made out with in junior high school. Then there was Penny, who didn't want to have sex. Next was Charlie, who Rob thought was out of his league. Then there was Sarah, a rebound. By reflecting on the mistakes of the past, can Rob reconcile with Laura? So, like I said, I saw this in the theater. I don't remember that it was a big hit. How did it do at the box office? Uh, It was not a big hit. Uh, It opened on March 31st, 2000. So you would have been uh, a junior. And uh, the movie had a $30 million budget. My guess is that it's because they filmed in Chicago. And it opened number five that weekend with uh, $6.4 million. On its way only to $27 million domestically and $47 million worldwide. The box office that weekend was uh, The Skulls. Do you remember that film with uh, Joshua Jackson and Paul Walker? Yeah, it's like a fraternity movie, horror, thriller kind of a thing. Oh, like a fictionalized version of like Yale's uh, Skull and Bone Society. Yeah. Um, the number one film uh, that weekend, Julia Roberts won a Best Actress Oscar for this role. Erin Brockovich? That's correct. Number six that weekend, a movie I'm sure we're going to uh, review at some point, American Beauty. Uh, mm-hmm. Another film from a real hot action star for a while, uh, Jet Li. It was Romeo Must Die, Final Destination, Mission to Mars. I'll probably uh, force you to watch that film at some point. I saw that one in the theater. I remember that. Yeah, so it wasn't really a big hit. You know, it eventually spawned a television series that we'll talk about. But, uh, you know, this movie is based on a novel by uh, a novelist named Nick Hornby. And have you ever read anything by Nick Hornby? I have not. What else has he written? Some of his more famous ones that became uh, movies. There was a time when I would say this was up there as one of my favorite movies. A movie called About a Boy. I've heard of it. Uh, Hugh Grant, right? Hugh Grant and a very, very young, I believe it's uh, and introducing Nicholas Hout. If you saw the new X-Men trilogy, uh, he was Beast in that oh, yeah, film. Yeah, yeah. He's in yeah. a lot of stuff. I think he's in a lot of these acclaimed uh, movies and series. And he's written a lot of novels. But another one that became a uh, popular uh, movie, uh, Fever Pitch. 
I'm familiar with the Jimmy Fallon, Drew Barrymore version, but wasn't there like a British version that it was based on? A lot of his novels are based in in England and uh, High Fidelity is based in London, but they changed it to Chicago. And Nick Hornby said it was totally cool. He said the geography really didn't matter in this film. It was more about the story and characters. And I believe the original script of Fever Pitch was about a uh, obsessed Boston Red Sox fan. The movie actually came out in 2005. I think the movie was kind of going to be about, you know, a loser who was like just obsessed with them winning. And I'm sure this screenplay originally was going to talk about how the Boston Red Sox don't win either, but uh, then they won. So they had to totally redesigned the uh, the movie and uh, they filmed Drew Barrymore and uh, Jimmy Fallon at Fenway Park during the year that they win the World Series. I don't know if it was at the World Series. I always thought that was fascinating. Yeah. I mean, the guy's a good author. He, he tells good stories and he does it in a, I wouldn't say highbrow. You're not going to be reading, you know, uh, Dostoevsky, but I recommend his stuff. Gotcha. So I hadn't seen this movie in a long time, like I said, but I did remember he was a music snob, that Rob loves music and there's just a lot of like inside baseball talk about music. And the funny thing is that this movie came out in 2000 and I feel like vinyl has only become bigger since 2000. Like now, the fact that he works at a record store is cool I don't know how cool it was in 2000. Maybe it was. It could have been super cool and I just didn't know it. No, I don't think it was that cool back then. CDs were so great in terms of audio quality, infinitely better than cassettes. Vinyl is an analog, uh, I mean, directly recorded onto the vinyl. So there is a purity of the sound Back then, people would uh, be really just kind of snobby about it. I'm not the kind of person that uh, really knows the differences between these things. But I love that scratch when you first put the record down and that that whistle before the first few seconds. And between the tracks, there's a couple uh, rotations of the uh, record that it's just really cool. I don't know if I necessarily would make my entire collection records, but I've come around to believe that there really is a fantastic audio quality to records that is different. Well, the main difference with analog and digital, digital is all zeros and ones. It's a file. Whether that's on a CD or an MP3 or streaming from Spotify or whatever, it's a digital file. An analog recording can still be high quality, but it's just a different thing. It's a different type of music. And I don't know if I've told you this, but Courtney and I bought a record player. We have some albums now. Did I tell you that? No, I didn't know. That's pretty cool. We were talking about getting records and being vinyl people for a while. And we finally went into a store over our anniversary weekend and we were looking around. I picked up one album that I was like, this I have to buy and James will appreciate it. Try to guess what album that was. Well, if I really want to show off for myself uh, a sound system, I would get like the best of John Williams on vinyl. Okay. So it is John Williams. It's the score for Superman, the motion picture. It's a double album. It sounds great. It was the first record we put on when we got the turntable. To your point about a best of, a lot of my CDs are best ofs and compilations. My rule for the records is I only want to buy albums. 
no compilations, no best ofs, no collections, just albums. Now, would you make exceptions for certain things like Queen's Greatest Hits, Steve Miller Band's Greatest Hits, Bob Marley Legend? I don't know Bob Marley's individual albums or Steve Miller's uh, individual albums or Queen. I I see what you're saying, but I would consider those to be uh, complete albums, to me, in my experience. I would say no And I own all of those on CD, so I also don't want to rebuy things that I already have on CD. And to be clear, our record collection is very, very small. After Christmas, I think maybe we're up to 10 or 12 albums. So it's nothing like what Rob has in his apartment. I did remember from this movie when he says that he's arranging all of his albums autobiographically, not alphabetically and not chronologically, but as according to his life and when he got those albums, I love that. I think that is so amazing. I could never do it. Everything that I own has to be arranged alphabetically, but I just think that's a really cool way of organizing anything. So vinyl definitely stands the test of time and has only gotten cooler since this movie came out. There is a lot of talk about CDs and tapes and mixtapes. And mixtapes, as a thing, they kind of stand the test of time. But when someone puts out a mixtape, it's a album and it's usually just on streaming. It's not a literal cassette tape made with different songs. And Courtney and I were talking about it the other day. I never made her a mix CD, which I'm embarrassed to say. She's made me a couple of mix CDs. And honestly, even a mix CD was easier. Like the way you had to make a mixtape, even the way that Rob makes it in this movie, it's hard. You have to have the right equipment. You have to really think about what song you're going to put on the tape in what order. You can make someone a Spotify playlist now, and that's just easy. Even if you put a lot of thought into it, it's still just easy to drag and drop. Like making a mixtape was hard, and I think that was kind of like the appeal. That's why you did it for someone that you liked, you know? I mean, a mixtape is a gift. You give yeah. someone a mixtape that you made, a Spotify playlist you made for someone. Hey, check this out, Al. I made a Sunday afternoon playlist. Like, it's a favor. Right. Like, hey, if you're bored, listen to this. Uh, I mean, it's not a mixtape. And you had yeah. to, like, record yourself the four seconds or so between songs. How long is it going to be? You're the uh, remixer. You decide how long it is. And you had to press pause and unpause on the cassettes. It was incredibly annoying. You had to queue up the first cassette, which was annoying in and of itself. I still remember I did not care about the audio quality of cassettes versus CDs. But oh my God, when I saw my brother, when he got a CD player, he could just tap on that button and it goes to the next song. I thought that was insane. You don't have to rewind. I remember for a short while they came up with one of these uh, smart fast forwarding uh, tricks where it would fast forward and the tape would automatically detect where the break in the song was. But it came out like right when the CDs came out. So I was like one of those, uh, all right, that's cute. Right, 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 right. What do you think about Rob's frequent uh, voiceovers? But it's not as much voiceovers as it is uh, breaking the fourth wall. But he does some voiceovers. I only counted one real voiceover where it's not like he's starting talking to camera and then the voiceover continues over footage. That's when he's at Charlie's party. And I feel like at that point, it's just pure VO. At no point does he look to camera. 
it's a question of semantics of is it voiceover versus breaking the fourth wall and you know it kind of blurs the line back and forth um i think it was fine and in this case it's a device that's used kind of in part because this is based on a novel and that's just sort of how they do it a lot of it is his backstory he's also alone he's not talking to anyone about the girl he made out with when he was 12 years old he's talking to us, the audience. Apparently, John Cusack had some reservations about doing that for the movie because that's a lot of him. And it is a lot of him. Like, he is on screen for, I don't know, like 90% of this movie. Like, the audience doesn't really get a break from him, which is fine. It's usually not how these things work. But it didn't really bother me too much, to be honest. Okay. I mean, I thought it worked uh, very well in this film. I think the way he frames things of top five lists and uh, it, it reads like the novel. Sometimes you could tell movies are based on novels in, in a yeah. good way or, or bad way. Let me ask you something. Was yeah. this movie your introduction to Jack Black? I think so. I don't think I was familiar with him before this. This was like his first major role in a major movie, right? Oh, this was not the first Jack Black film for me. I knew Jack Black from a movie from 1993. I did not see it in the theaters. I am going to make you review it at one point. It is the only, as far as I know, the only rollerblade-themed movie. Uh, it, it is called what? Airborne. It's basically a California surfer has to live with his annoying cousin in Minnesota. Lame cousin happens to be Seth Green in his first uh, big role that I knew him from. And then Jack Black is one of the uh, bullies there because he's a California surfer dude who then discovers rollerblading. No, we're not doing that. Oh, we're no. doing it. No. Oh, yeah. No, 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 no. That sounds awful. It's amazing. Sounds terrible. I'll have to do a movie that you forced me to do. You're doing Airborne. Oh, God. We'll take that offline. Uh, I I love Jack Black. He's great. One of the other things I remembered from this movie is his gag at the end when he introduces his band and he renames it Kathleen Turner Overdrive. I thought that was pretty funny in 2000. I still think that's pretty funny. It's a riff on Bachman Turner Overdrive. Taking care of business. Those guys. Ah, I, I didn't get it. I thought it was like some scandal Kathleen Turner was in. Did she run over someone? Overdrive? I don't know. <laughs> uh, but no. yeah, I had no idea what that was. Apparently the role was written for him. I could see that. And of course, Jack Black can sing, right. you know, from Tenacious D. We know that. But because you mentioned that you didn't get that joke, there is a level of music snobbery in this movie that I kind of appreciated i could also see how it could turn a lot of people off well i mean these guys are snobby uh douchebags they are insufferable when you do not like the music that they like the way they treat paying customers like in a store that rob admits is like practically going under and it only arounds because he borrowed money from an ex and was you know never paid her back they're complete assholes to their customers uh, or at least i would say dickie and rob they seem to be good guys and when you get to see him not in his manic mode even barry uh, jack black he seems to be a good guy too I guess I was looking at it from the lens of like, how big assholes are these guys? And there's a great part when Jack Black's character puts on Walking on Sunshine by Katrina and the Waves. And my first thought was like, if he's a real music snob, he wouldn't play that song. And then I was like, no, you know what? He would, because that is an amazing, wonderful, fantastic, 
pop song. And if you're a music snob, you can appreciate a good pop song. I was out with some friends not that long ago, and uh, Steal My Sunshine came on, and one of the guys that I was with, I don't know if he's a music snob, but he knows a lot about music, and I was like almost afraid to say, I really love this song. And I was like, nah, screw it, whatever. I'm like, this is a great song. And he's like, yeah, it's like a perfect pop song. I was like, yes, exactly, right, we agree. I'm like, okay, if you think it's cool, then it's okay for me to think it's cool. I think it's okay to appreciate any kind of good music. I am not a music snob in any way. I absolutely appreciate a good pop song. Uh, The story you just told me reminded me, I can't remember what... uh, music critic it was, not Matt Pinfield, but someone with like that gravitas, super cool. I remember this guy saying, Hanson's Mbop is a perfect pop song. Like ever since that guy said that, when Mbop came on, it's not that I liked it more, but I was like, oh, this is a quality uh, pop song here. <laughs> and, uh, yeah. I'm not sure that Barry actually likes that song though. I think he might be doing it to annoy everyone else. I, I think he might be doing that. Possible. Some of their conversations about music did kind of make me a little bit wistful for my days at MTV and VH1 and Fuse, like the top five conversations. I remember when I worked at Fuse News, getting to work one day and walking into a conversation among my coworkers of like, what's the best double album of all time? And you can't say the white album, go. And like, that was just fun. They weren't doing it to like, put you down if you got the wrong answer, quote unquote wrong. It was just like, we all love music and we all know stuff and let's just riff on whatever random topic. And I don't know, I kind of miss those days. Well, I mean, people still do that. You'll see like Reddit posts that are like, what's the greatest television series of all time? Not called The Sopranos. With a little snobbery of uh, obviously what I think is the greatest thing we all agree on. So let's go to the next one. It's more fun to do it in person than it is to do it on Reddit, in my humble opinion. But let's get into the love stuff. Rob, looking back at his old loves to see if he can repair the broken relationship with his current on-off-again girlfriend, Laura. So I want to ask you, James, you've been single for a hell of a lot longer than I've been single. What parts of Rob and his personality did you relate to? If any, maybe you didn't relate to him at all. Uh, I don't relate too much to Rob's single life. I think this guy Rob is, he's totally depressed. Uh, I mean, uh, he's not just like, I haven't found love. He's like, my life sucks. My job sucks. My store sucks. I didn't relate to this guy. Okay. I related to one thing that he really talked about a lot with uh, Charlie, played by Catherine Zeta-Jones. P.S. What a fox in this movie. But he basically sabotaged that relationship by being insecure. And he felt like she was too good for him and he didn't deserve to be with her and she was out of his league. And I can relate to that. I definitely thought that about Courtney when we first started dating and honestly, some other girls too, where it's like, man, why does this girl who's so pretty and so smart, why does she want to hang out with me? And then the realization that he has with Charlie later on, where he's like, I thought everything she said was brilliant and amazing and wonderful, but then I realized that 
yeah, she says the most witty things in the world, but she also doesn't let anyone ever say anything else. Like, it's all about her. He kind of has, like, this epiphany about her. And I felt like that was kind of relatable. Like, you have that rose-tinted glasses of someone that you used to date. Like, oh, they were perfect. And then you spend more time with them later, and you're like, oh, this person isn't perfect. What the hell was I thinking? Right. You know, I'm going to change my answer to what you said before. I, now I can think of two things that relate to this film. One, okay. Charlie. Yes, I was not uh, exactly the ladies man in, in high school and in really college that much. And there was a time I think I was uh, trying to date girls that I probably couldn't get in high school. And I definitely would realize no, I actually don't want to go out with her anymore. Not necessarily exactly Charlie way. So I, I did understand that. But I think the overall idea that he's obsessing over these people and thinking that all oh, these things change his life, I love that when he kind of finds out about him, like, no, um, you're not the main character in all these people's uh, lives. Actually, the first girl you, you've been obsessing over from junior high, she wound up leaving you for the guy she married. So it's not that she dumped you for him. It's that she wound up marrying the love of her life. You know, not everyone's thinking about you as much as you think people are thinking about you. And it goes vice versa. I think that's kind of a good lesson in life. You can move on. You don't have to dwell on the past so much. Right. I don't know people who do this, but like, I feel like, people do, right? Like you hear about it every now and again, where people like reach out to someone they dated a million years ago. In the movie, he looks them up in the phone book. Nowadays, you just look them up on Facebook or Instagram or whatever, and like connect to someone you dated a million years ago, quote unquote, foreclosure, which to me just seems so fucking stupid. I have never done that. I have no desire to do that. I don't know if you've ever done that, but like it just seems like a pointless, futile exercise that will accomplish nothing, that will not help you solve any problems in the present just by revisiting the past. It seems really, really fucking dumb to me. Oh, absolutely. I think in most cases, it's probably someone uh, thirsty, not looking for closure. I think they're thirsty. That That's what <laughs> Maybe. I think it is. Um, I want to talk a little bit about Marie DeSalle, who's like the other woman that he's interested in, played by Lisa Bonet, who is so goddamn hot in this movie. And I watched her in The Cosby Show, and I watched her in A Different World. I don't think I ever really had a crush on her then. Maybe I was too young, but I definitely had a huge crush on her in this movie. And they did make a high-fidelity spinoff TV show starring Zoe Kravitz her daughter, who is also beautiful and I also kind of have a crush on. Yes, I agree. Uh, Lisa Bonet's uh, small role is really good. I wanted her character to return a little bit, but uh, they didn't, and I think that was that was better. Right, 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 right. But do you think that 2000's High Fidelity stands the test of time? You hit the nail on the head. Vinyl, what this movie is based on, it super stands the test of time. The record store guy, it's such a great character that's not seen very much, but there's something called a Brooklyn hipster, and they're they're fun, but they're annoying, and they're snobby, but they're nice. This is such a great hipster, but he's flawed, and it's a good journey. Jack Black steals every single scene he's in. He's so good in this film. Everyone is good in this film, though. Bruce Springsteen has a cameo in the film. We didn't talk about that. Uh, yeah. But there's really not much I would take out of this film. Overall, it stands the test of time. Real fun film. Uh, what do you think, Al? Does High Fidelity stand up? So you said that it's a real fun film. 
And it is fun in a lot of ways. But there was one thing that really, really bothered me. And that is the scene where Rob is talking to his high school girlfriend and she describes how she was raped after they broke up. He left her because they wouldn't have sex and she was heartbroken. And the next guy she dated basically raped her. And then uh, she couldn't have sex for years after that. And Rob's reaction to that is, so it wasn't me. I didn't do anything wrong. Great. All right. I broke up with you. Neat. I can forget about you and move on with my journey. It's like, holy shit. This woman just told you about a horrific trauma that she went through. And Rob is obviously not the assailant. He didn't rape her. But at least in her eyes, he is somewhat indirectly, partially, however you want to say it, somewhat responsible. And he doesn't give a shit. And I really kind of hated Rob in that moment. And it's okay for Rob to be a flawed character, and he is incredibly narcissistic. He does think the world revolves around him. But, like, I really found that to be just awful. And, like, I really had a hard time, like, getting past that. And it seems to me, like, there's a really, really fucking easy solution to that problem and kind of maybe just tie up some loose ends in this movie, which is, at the very end, he should go back to all of the exes that he talked to throughout the movie. Doesn't need to be a long, drawn-out thing. Hell, make it a fucking montage. It can be a minute and a half where he calls back the mom of the girl that he made out with in school and says, hey, just wanted to say congratulations on your daughter and her husband. And then he goes to the, the rebound girl and says, hey, you know what? Our relationship was damaged, but... I'm grateful for the time we had together. He goes back to Charlie and is like, you broke up with me because I was insecure. And you were right. I was insecure. But, you know, we still had some great times. And then he goes back to this woman and says, I am so, so sorry that that happened. I was a fucking miserable shit. You don't have to forgive me, but I just want you to know I'm sorry. Something like that, I think, really would have helped make this character more likable. Because I think in a lot of ways he is likable. I think in a lot of ways you can relate to the guy when he's having this relationship with Marie, Lisa Bonet's character. She's gorgeous and she's into him and he can't get past Laura. Like she comes to his store and flirts with him. And then all he can fixate on is the fact that Joan Cusack, by the way, John Cusack's sister is in this movie. Not the first time that happened. We saw that in 16 candles, but they have way more scenes together in this movie. But like Joan Cusack's character is talking to him and is like, Oh, I don't really like Laura's new boyfriend, Ian. And then this beautiful woman comes into the store and flirts with him. And all Rob can think of is, who's Ian? And then Rob has sex with Lisa Bonet's character. It's amazing. It's wonderful. But then he's still hung up on, Laura said she hasn't had sex with Ian yet. What does yet mean? Are they going to? I feel like that shit is relatable, right? Like you're, you're hung up on the wrong thing. You're focusing on the wrong thing. He's insecure. He's narcissistic. He's not perfect. Fine. I did get hung up on that one scene, but overall, I do think that the movie does work because it is a portrayal of this guy who is fucking flawed. He's not a hero. I don't think he's like a ideal rom-com perfect guy, right? Like not that long ago, we talked about Titanic and, you know, like how your sister was in love with Leonardo DiCaprio and you kind of see it, right? Like that guy in that movie, he's just so dreamy and he's so perfect and he's so kind and heroic. 
John Cusack in this movie ain't that, but he's a real guy. And all of the music stuff I really, really enjoyed. The soundtrack in this movie is in fucking sanely good. I mean, it had to be, right? Like, you couldn't have a movie like this and have a shitty soundtrack. I was listening to a Spotify playlist that had not only the songs in the movie, but some of the songs that they mention that aren't in the movie, and I was really getting into it. I'm going to say that this movie does stand the test of time. I love John Cusack. I love Jack Black. He's so fucking good in this movie. Yeah, it does stand the test of time. Um, When I said fun, I was thinking of Jack Black. Any scene with Jack Black is as fun as his rocking out scenes in School of Rock. That's how good those scenes are. But you're right. You're absolutely right. Fun is not the right word for this. This is a a film with depressing uh, parts. I I thought you were going to say the scene that disturbed you was uh, after uh, Laura's father dies. She basically is like, I need you to have sex with me right now, or I'm basically going to either kill herself or just start self-harming. Like, put a cigarette out on her arm, put her hand in the fire. Like, I need to feel something. That's not a fun scene. The film tackles a lot of deep subjects while still being able to uh, to have a lot of fun scenes and not have a cliche love story. No, and I mean, to that point, his quote-unquote proposal to Laura is like the opposite of what you would see in any standard rom-com. It's really entertaining to watch, but it's also like, it's the opposite of romantic. He basically says, I'm always going to fantasize about other women, but, you know, those are just fantasies, and I guess you're good enough. He doesn't use those exact words, but that's basically what he says. That is not a romantic way to propose, and I'm sure real people in real life do propose that way, but it's not usually what you would see in your standard rom-com. And I appreciate that. I appreciate the fact that this movie does things in an unconventional way. And Laura's reaction to this proposal is like, okay, I get what you're saying, whatever. Like, she gets it. She's not mad at him because she understands that, like, he's being honest in his fucked up way. So it's cool that it's not all cliche. I would say this is a grown-up film. I definitely agree with that. But that's going to do it for us this week. Next week, we are going to be joined by a very special guest. My sister, Samantha Noah, is coming back on the show to talk about The Devil Wears Prada. I cannot even tell you how many times she has asked me, when am I coming on the show to do The Devil Wears Prada? I wanted to do Devil Wears Prada. You need to have me back on to do Devil Wears Prada. I'm basically just letting her on to shut her up. Just kidding, Sam. I love you. It'll be great to talk to you about The Devil Wears Prada. Have you seen that movie, James? I have not seen this film. I saw it once in the theater with Courtney. Have not thought about it in many, many years. But Sam will be back to talk about that movie. In the meantime, as always, we want to hear from you guys. We are at Tested Time Pod on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. Reach out to us. Say hello. Say hi. Say Happy New Year. We're glad to be podcasting for you guys for another year. And we will see you next time, everybody. Bye. Bye.